Hello and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is where you'll find conversations with the authors and illustrators whose work has been nominated for the annual shortlist. My guest on this episode is Kayla Zaga. Kayla's book of poetry, Dunk Tank, is nominated for the Dorothy Livesave Poetry Prize. She's also been awarded prizes such as the Gerald Lampard Memorial Prize and the Canadian Authors Association's Emerging Writer Award. She's been nominated for the Governor General's Literary Award as well. Dunk Tank is Kayla's second book of poetry. The collection explores adolescence, adulthood, friendships, and Winona Ryder. Kayla starts our conversation with a reading from her book. I'm going to read three poems from my collection, Dunk Tank, and I will start with the title poem, uh, which is set in high school. Dunk Tank. The volleyball girls wrestle in jello. Travis Lechner, lead screamer of occult nosebleed, commands the 10th grade stoners to live real. The French teacher struts like a heron, beige socks hiked up to his knees. You've been suckered into a shift at the dunk tank to fundraise for a school in Tanzania. You'll be dunked six times, twice by a boy named Bryce you love but never talk to. When he runs out of money, he'll throw grass at you, chunks of hot dog, himself. You climb up and wave to your friends eating Filipino kebabs by the track. Tonight you'll all drink coolers by the waterfall. This is the year Dustin Klapsch will drive his ATV off a cliff. You sit above the drunk goggle obstacle course and the root beer guzzling contest, and you know you know everything. Can diagram reproductive systems of worms, know exactly when two trains traveling 60 kilometers an hour, will meet in Kitwanga for lunch. This is the year your mom's kidneys will fail while you're in history, and the year Christy will stop talking to you and painting sad, lovely portraits of her dogs. Bryce pays $2 to throw three balls at you. The wind sighs like it's locked its keys in its car. You're sitting on your chair, smart girl, only your chair drops. And before you fall, there's this moment you're sitting on nothing. And you think maybe you won't fall after all. Maybe you'll just hover here forever. And so the whole uh, first section of the book kind of takes place um, in high school or shortly thereafter. Um, and the book goes on to, to deal with kind of post, post-life things after that, or post-high school adult things, I guess, after that. And so this next poem was written to and during um, the, the Vancouver housing crisis under construction. You'd think that empty lot had slaughtered their mothers, the way those men torture it with yellow machines. With how little sleep you've been getting, you think a lot of sinister things, especially these mornings when light is the translucent gray of fake teeth. Your dad used to bring you home dinosaur bones from the foothills he raised to lay highways. You can't remember when you realized trucks run on a broth of ancient lizards, but now they'll never not feel haunted 
It's important to get places, but you doubt another condo tower beside the train line will do more than rattle like a Yahtzee cup tossing professional couples. You keep the fossils like jewelry on your dresser, stroke their tar settings until they look wet. A view, more sleep, a new life with fewer machines. You've wanted so much for so long, you don't remember living without the fuel light on. An invisible raptor stands behind you in a business suit, factoring in inflation with his talon on your hand. And then switching directions completely, I'm just going to finish with a poem about Winona Ryder. And for those of you who may not know, Cerberus is the name of the, the three-headed uh, mythical dog who sort of guards um, the entry to the underworld. Death, starring Winona Ryder. Her eyes are the three faces of Cerberus. The third hides behind her shocked bangs. No, the third is her pursed mouth. If you zoom in on Winona, you will see her skin is filled with third eyes. We call them pores. Each one of them is rolling, each one of them ahead to the dog guarding death. Of course, an actor covered in third eyes that also guard death would be difficult to work with. What did you expect? She has the most magical acne. You may feel her whole body making eye contact with you because it is, but mostly her whole body has better things to look at, like very long trains and sexy rivers. If the dogs guard death, then inside of her is where all the dead people live. All the living people live outside of her, eating pretzels, etc., like you and me. Wow. She's extremely haunted. Ever thought Beetlejuice felt a bit too same-same to your home movies? Me too. All our Ouija boards call out Winona during sex over and over. It would be boring if it wasn't Winona. Don't call her a bitch, though she is covered in bitches, and sometimes they are in heat. Sometimes you can smell her skin. It smells like it just ran into the yard and murdered something so quickly you didn't even hear it die. But when Winona dies, what happens? What will happen to us when Winona dies? Thank you. I'd read a little bit about your um, process and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how the process of this book started for you. Okay. So I think, so uh, before I wrote this book, I had written For Your Safety, which was kind of the culmination of my master's program at UBC. And it was my thesis and it was about family. It was also kind of a coming of age book, but in a very... A much less personal way. And I think that I started Dunk Tank knowing that I wanted to focus on some things I hadn't explored in the first book and maybe veer into some more personal territory. Um, and I also knew that I wanted to write a book kind of completely unsupervised because I hadn't done that before and sort of outside of well, I mean, I still I still was participating in the literary world, but I, I didn't want to be part of any institutions at the time. So I, I deliberately chose jobs that were not not in the writing field to kind of, I don't know, stay stay a bit outside while writing it to give myself like a bit of space. 
Um, and then the book kind of, it, it took a while to write, took closer to four, four years when the first one took maybe only one and a half. I don't know if that, that was totally what you were asking, though. Well, yeah, I think so. Because, I mean, even just hearing you talk about um, wanting to write something a bit more personal, because it was interesting because I wondered if it was you on the page or whether you were playing with character, but um, what was it like to put yourself on the page that way? And did you play a little bit with, with being someone else at the same time? I, yeah. So um, it, it felt, <laughs> it was a, it was a little bit harder uh, to let the poems out into the world. I think I held on to the book like a bit longer than I needed to before I sent it out because a lot of the material was a little bit harder um, and I wasn't sure, you know, what like what the reaction would be or, or like being seen like that. At the same time, not all of the poems are me and I do uh, play with, with other voices. And I think that every... Um, like the the poems are kind of constructed so uh, each one of them I'm kind of it's my voice but then it's also something that I'm that that I'm putting into a poem to kind of create a final product so I've I've got reviews of this book that kind of say oh Kayla did this in her poems and did that and make like really blur the line between biography and uh, and my poems which I don't really like because they they are drawn from my biography but they are still something that I kind of like created and and worked on so I kind of like having the distinction of the speaker yeah and I mean how do you respond to that when people kind of because I I always laugh that poetry is in the nonfiction section of the library I work at a library because I think people forget that it is it is crafted it is construction and Mm -hmm. that line um, in some people's minds get blurry, but it, you know, you can have that different personality on the page, but it's not always clear to the reader. Is there things you do to try and make it clear or to clarify it for, for your reader? Mm, I guess there's not necessarily anything that I've done to, on the page, show that I'm not, I don't know, it's a funny thing. To, um, but it's true before, not being very articulate at the moment, but uh, but before I knew, or like I, my my first year poetry prof um, in university basically told me that the, the speaker is not the same as the, um, the biographical person that wrote the poem. But even before that, I don't think I read poems with that expectation. I think I read poems with a much different expectation that they would like shed light on something or like lead me to a deeper understanding of something or do something with language that was interesting. So I don't think I ever expected that uh, the, the, the person in the poems was like a biographical person. I was maybe looking for something different in poems and I would hope that be- people gravitate towards poetry for those reasons. And when they, they read my things, they're not thinking like, wow, she went, she, she went through all these things, but they're, they're seeing maybe what I'm doing with language. At the same time, I have had people come up to me and tell me that it was really helpful for them reading about me going through a thing that they went through, and it made them feel less alone. So um, when that happens, I'm kind of like, okay, it's, it's kind of okay if you kind of blurred the line between like speaker and poet. 
Um, the one thing that does bug me and has happened before is when, when people assume that they know me after reading my poems. Um, and so, and I don't know how to better signal that, that the poems are not me, but, um, but those are some of the ways that I guess I've, I've experienced the conflation of the two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting what you were saying about, um, being, a a poet, a poet of people in that there were a lot of people in your um in your poems and I recognized some names and I saw them in your acknowledgments when I flipped to the back mm -hmm. and I also noticed uh this name Kyla coming up over and over again and I wondered if you could talk about who Kyla is and why you chose to include that character in your poem okay so Kyla is and is not um, my friend Kyla Jamison, who lives in Vancouver, um, who I met during my master's uh, program. Um, when when we met, Kyla was writing a series. Um, she's also a writer of sort of like a letters to her friend that she was like seeing as like a big uh, project, um, and then like a big sort of. Like artistic literary project, and I really liked that idea. And I and I've always found the idea of like the epistolary form really charged and intimate and um, interesting. And um, and I was also really inspired by uh, uh, Leon by Ariana Rhines, which has a similar form. Um, and then after I, Kyle and I had been friends for about a year or two, I read I Love Dick by Chris Krause, which is also in the epistolary form and. Um, is a series of letters that Chris Krause wrote to a man named Dick Richard. And in the opening of I Love Dick, Chris talks about this time when she's at Dick's house and he plays his answering machine back in the time when there was answering machines and a message from someone named Kyla uh, came through. And I and then when I read that, I was like, wow, this is, it's kind of like, uh, I'd been, Kyla's been writing all these letters and I'd been thinking about the epistolary form and then all of a sudden she like occurred in this this other big epistolary novel that someone else had written and then that kind of charged the the the, the that section of the collection and then I think that I, I stayed and played in that voice for a long time because uh, I really admire Kyla and she has very strong notions on art and I and I found that talking directly to her, as opposed to like a general, like broader audience that I think about, or people that I think about when I write about poems, um, kind of enabled me to say um, different things or allowed my voice to go in ways that it wouldn't normally. So that, that that's kind of the idea behind the Kyla poems. I sometimes wondered if it was if it was you because I then I. I'd heard that you get called Kyla so often that I thought maybe it was like this moment of you talking to yourself a little bit, but um, yeah, cause I mean, that was yeah. running through my head too, as I was reading it. That totally is in there. Um, and I think that a lot of my poems are me trying to talk to myself uh, and work something out. And then I send them out into the world. And, and yeah, I think talking to like the, the Kyla part, of me and the, and Kyla as well. Yeah, I, I don't think that's that's a an unfair reading is, is what I'm trying to say. I guess. Okay. <laughs> Another thing that I really noticed uh, with your poetry, it, and I really, 
I think I really identified with parts of it because there were cultural references that were so familiar to me, like live journal. I totally mm-hmm. had a live journal. But I found it interesting in that, uh, especially in the high school part, it really seems like you captured that adolescent point of view. And I was curious if that was something that came up in the writing or the revision or was it on your mind as you were putting those poems together? So the first one that I wrote was the title poem. And it just kind of like sprung forth out of nowhere. And then once I wrote it, I kind of like stepped back and was like, oh, this is something I really want to do. And it came out kind of in the second person and the whole section is told in second person. And then once that um, that poem happened, it took a couple of years for, for all the rest to get written. And I kind of used it like as an entry point and um, both consciously and not made like a list of things about high school that I wanted to to tackle so the live journal was one that I, I thought about ahead of time I'm like oh I want to write um write a poem about about that experience um and then that kind of uh kind of spun back to synchronized eye rolling which is you know about like notes that um that you fold up and, and pass in class and then that one um kind of cycled forward to like the mists of avalon um that i remembered doing like a big mural um or being part of painting a big mural on the side of my elementary school so um they kind of helped generate each other in a way and then as as um like between them i i thought about other things that and entry points that i wanted to put into my adolescent series how did you find poetry is it always been something you've been drawn to yeah, um, when I was a, a, like a little kid, I would write um, uh, what I called them novels. Um, and then when I was um, 12 or 13, I started actually writing poems. Um, they were like long and rhymed and, um, and I wrote them for a few years and then I stopped and cycled back in. So writing has always been something that I've just sort of done. Where do you find uh, inspiration for your poems? You you talked about um, kind of where the idea for Dunk Tank came from, but are you someone who kind of sits down and will write a poem from beginning to end, or does it come together a bit more randomly than that? Sometimes Dunk Tank itself came together like really like in one in one draft. I although it had later drafts, but the whole thing kind of came out at once. But more often. I'll, I'll get a few like lines or ideas um, and then I kind of have to sit with them and see kind of where they're where they're leading me and I go for quite a few walks and I read a lot of other poetry while I'm writing uh, and then usually over the course of like a week or so the line that that I came up with will kind of generate some others and and grow into something um, although sometimes I'll, I'll have like a lot of them don't come to anything at all. So I'll just have like a notebook of, of things that I started. Um, and sometimes I'll go back to them. Some of my like uh, earlier better poems were taking two failed halves of a poem and, and throwing them together and then they became their own thing. So it's a it's a mixture of uh, of starts, I think. Do you, do you share your work a lot with others? I noticed a lot of... Um writing community folk in the back of your uh, your acknowledgements is it important to you to have that community for your process 
sometimes I share share my poems. I usually have like a, a one or two uh, people that I'm that I'm consistently sharing with. I always share with my partner, even though she's she's not a writer. Um, I think it's just more important for me to have folks around who are doing a similar thing that I can kind of like talk to and and. Um, it's important for me to, to go to events and, and hear other people read and be around people who are doing the same thing. Um, and, and sometimes we, we share drafts, but more often it's just kind of like, uh, you being there helps me also be here. Yeah. I noticed another familiar name in, at your acknowledgements and that's Sean Cranberry's name. Um, and the storm (laughs) crow, which I, I feel like I have to ask about for both for Sean, but also because we, the storm crow after all of this is no longer. And I wondered what um, the role of that place was in this book and for you. And I just thought I should ask because Sean probably wants me to as well. Oh yeah. I owe so much to Sean. Uh, yeah. Um, and I would not be, well, I would be here, but in a very different form without the storm crow. Um, when yeah, when I got out of um, the master's program at UBC, I didn't really know what sort of job to get, uh, so I, I went back to uh, working at Starbucks, and I was the opener. Um, so I would get up at like four thirty in the morning and bike um, in the dark, in like in East Van, and not make very much money. Um, and then I'd be miserable, and I'd like sleep. The rest of the day and um and i complained and i worked christmas day because i thought that i would make more money and i didn't people tipped horribly <laughs> on christmas day at starbucks and i complained so much about it that uh sean cranberry was just opening the the second storm for the alehouse at the time and he reached out to me and he's like he's like come work um at my bar um he didn't even really interview me or like ask for any references he's like you i know you you could probably work here and then i ended up working at the storm crow for three and a half years and uh and there was all sorts of other creative um artistic people who worked there and just other great fun nerdy humans um and and yeah that was kind of the the environment that I wrote most of Dunk Tank in and I'm really and I ended up even writing um uh the Storm Crow Cells Dinosaur Erotica um and I ended up writing that for sale in-house and I be it, it was like a really big community and so I'm sad that the one on the drive the original one is gone but but really thankful that that Sean pulled me out and and set me set me in there um and I'm so happy now that he he's moved on and is the director of the BC book prizes because I think he's going to do really wonderful things there thanks to Kayla for being on the podcast and for the beautiful reading from your book And thanks, as always, to you, our listeners, for listening. If you'd like more information on the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on the social medias, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next time on the podcast, you'll hear my conversation with two amazing people, Roy Henry Vickers and Lucky Bud, whose book, Voices from the Skeena, an oral illustrated history, is nominated for the Bill Duthie Booksellers Choice Award. Thanks again for listening to Writing the Coast.